0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi. I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, quiet bedtime stories to help you fall asleep. Well, the day after I recorded last week's episode, we spent the afternoon packing up and getting ready to evacuate for a fire that looked like it was coming our way. But we got lucky enough that they put it out, and it never did. So the action continues up here in fire season on the mountain, and I want to thank all of you who checked in on me this week. It's always nice to hear from you. One of my favorite things about the podcast growing all over the world is that I have made so many good friends, people who I chat with on Instagram, through the Patreon, by email, and it's just turning into a really wonderful community of mutual support. I help you sleep and you help me feel a little less alone out here in the woods. It's, uh, it's wonderful and I just want to let you know how much I appreciate it. Enough about fire. It's just really another one of the elements along with earth, air, and water and it's helpful for me to Keep that perspective. Aside from some extra smoke, things are going on as normal here in the natural surroundings of this place I love so much. This week, a pair of oak titmice fledged from the nest on the porch. Titmice are birds, small birds here in California that build a nest on the porch every year. And the babies only take about three weeks to go from eggs to flying away. And these last three weeks were entertaining because of the time we got to watch them. Getting to sit out on the porch and watch the babies and the mom and dad feed them is a lot of fun in the summer. And just before they fledged, I was out the other night barbecuing and both of the chicks were sitting up on the edge of the nest just staring down at me with their heads cocked wondering what I was doing i put a picture of them when they were just born on the blog this week if you want to go see it you can find a link in the show notes or just go to listen to sleep.com i want to thank the folks who left a review on listen to sleep.com or over at apple podcasts this week It was very sweet to get one from an 80-year-old person and a 14-year-old person back-to-back. It's great to know that these stories cut across generations to help all of you sleep. I also got a message from a couple of folks who had kids who listen, younger children, and I came up with an idea this week. First. I want to say hi to those kids. Hi to Max and his mom in Tasmania, and to Elio and his mom in Brookline, Mass., which was the first town I moved to after I graduated from high school. When I started the podcast, it was with an eye towards creating bedtime stories for adults. Nothing racy or too complicated, but... I wanted to do bedtime stories that I would want to listen to, that weren't just for children. And of course, there are many fairy tales mixed in there. And a lot of stories out of the more than 120 episodes I've done now are appropriate for kids. But here's the thing. I have done so many now, I'm not really sure which are good for kids and which aren't. And so... Elio's mom sent me a list of a few that she thought would be good. And if you have kids, younger kids, and there are episodes that they especially like and you think are well-suited to them, could you drop me a line at eric at listentosleep.com? That's E-R-I-K. And I want to add a category on the website for kid-friendly stories so that if you're a parent and you're looking for episodes that will work especially well for kids, you can just go there and search. I'd appreciate your help with that. Thank you. Thank you also to the people who joined the Patreon this week. I want to give a big shout-out to Susan, Anthony, Jill, Casey, and Christine. Thank you so much for supporting Listen to Sleep. For less than $1 a month, you can support the podcast through the Patreon. And for that, you'll get the podcast a day earlier and with no ads or introductions, just straight to the meditation and into the story. The Patreon is also where you can subscribe to Listen to Sleep Plus and get an extra episode every week of a longer book that I read serially. Right now, we are reading Peter Pan and it is delightful. You'll also find all of Alice in Wonderland available there as well. That's at patreon.com slash listentosleep. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to the listentosleep.com website and get more information. This week's story is almost an hour long, so for you who like long stories, this one's for you. It's a fun Faulty Towers type story about a couple who find themselves at a welsh inn and all of the interesting characters they run into it's a great sleepy story that's also very descriptive and old-timey first let's take a deep breath and let it out. Just feel yourself sinking down into the mattress, letting the weight of gravity pull you down. Take another deep breath in with me. And out. nothing to do, nowhere to go. This is your time, quiet time. One more deep breath in and out. If you get tired while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself drift off. The Bat and Belfry Inn It was the maddest and most picturesque hotel at which we have ever stopped. Tony and I were touring North Wales. We had left Landidno that morning in the two-seater, lunched at Festiniog, and late in the afternoon were trundling down a charming valley with the reluctant assistance of a road whose surface, if it ever had possessed such an asset, had long since vanished. On rounding one of the innumerable hairpin bends on our road, there burst upon us the most gorgeous miniature scene that we had Ever encountered. I stopped the car almost automatically. Oh, George, what a charming hotel! exclaimed Tony. Let's stop and have tea. Tony, I should mention, is my wife. She is intensely practical. I had not noticed the hotel. For before us, the valley opened out into a perfect stage setting. From the road, the land fell sharply a hundred feet to a rocky mountain stream, the rustle of whose water came up to us faintly, like the music heard in a seashell. Beyond rose hills, hill upon hill, lit patchily by the sun, so that their contours were a mingling of brilliant purple heather, red-brown bracken, and indigo shadow. Far down the valley, the stream glinted, mirror-like, through a veil of trees. And Tony spoke of tea. I dragged my eyes from the magnet of the view, and found that I had stopped the car within a few yards of a little hotel that must have been planted there originally by someone with a soul. It lay by the open roadside, five miles from anywhere. It was built of the rough, gray-green stone of the district, but it was rescued from the commonplace by its leaded windows big old beams that angled across its white plastered gables, and by the clematis and late tea roses that clung about its porch. I could hardly blame Tony for her materialism. The hotel blended admirably with its surroundings. There was nothing about it of the beer house on the mountaintop, so dear to the German mind. It looked quiet, refined and restful, and one felt, instinctively, that it would be managed in a fashion in keeping with all about it. By Jove, Tony, I said, as I drew up to the clematis-covered porch, we might do worse than stop here for a day or two. We'll have tea anyhow, and see what we think of it. I clattered over the red-tiled floor, and when my eyes had grown accustomed to the dim light that contrasted so well with the sunshine without, found myself in a small, sunshiny room with a low ceiling, oak rafted, some comfortable chairs, an old eight-day clock stopped at 10.35, and a man. He was a long, thin man, clean-shaven, wearing an old shooting coat and a pair of shabby gray flannel trousers. He smoked a pipe and read in a book. At my entrance, he did not look up, and I set him down as a guest in the hotel. One side of the room was built of obscured glass panes, with an open square in the middle, and a ledge upon which rested several suggestive empty glasses. So I crossed to this hospitable-looking gap and tapped upon the ledge. Several repetitions bringing no response, I turned to the only living creature who appeared to be available. "'Can you tell me, sir, if we can have tea in the hotel?' I asked. The long man started, looked up, closed his book, and jumped to his feet as if galvanized to life.' Of course, of course, of course, he cried hastily, and added, as an afterthought, of course. I may have shown a natural surprise at this almost choral response, for he pulled himself together and became something more explicit. I'll see to it at once, he said hurriedly i'm i'm the proprietor you know you won't mind if we're if we're a little upset you see i i've just moved in left me by an uncle you know an uncle in australia i'll see to it at once anything you would like especially fancy bread and butter now or cake perhaps Will you take a seat, two seats? Tony had followed me in. And look at yesterday's paper. Oh, yes, you can have tea. Of course, of course, of course. Of his words petered out as he clattered off down a like-flagged passage. I looked at Tony and raised my eyebrows. Seems... A trifle mad, I said. How delightfully cool, said she, looking round the old-fashioned room appraisingly. And so clean. I think we'll stop. Let's have tea before we decide, I suggested. The proprietor is distinctly eccentric, to say the least of it. He looked quite a superior man, I thought, said Tony, not the least like a Welshman. Tony herself comes from far north of the Tweed. The hotel was small, and the kitchen, apparently, not far away, for we could not avoid hearing sounds of what appeared to be a heated argument, coming from the direction in which mine host had vanished. We were used to heated arguments in the hotels at which we had put up, but they had invariably taken place in Welsh, whereas this one was undoubtedly in English. Snatches of it reached our ears. Haven't the pluck of a rabbit, Bill? All very well, but... I'm not afraid, I'll— Then our host returned. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, he said, his hands thrust deep in his trousers' pockets, jingling loose change in a manner that suggested agitation. He stood looking down at us as though we were something he didn't Quite know what to do with. And then an idea seemed to strike him, and he vanished for a moment to reappear almost immediately in the square gap of the bar window. Have a drink while you're waiting? he asked, much more naturally. I looked at my watch. It was half past four. Very free and easy with the licensing laws, I thought. I thought six o'clock was opening time, I said. The thin man was overcome with confusion. His face flushed red. He shut the window down with a bang, and a moment after came round to us again. Awfully sorry, he stammered apologetically might get the house a bad name, deuced inconsiderate of of my uncle not to leave me a book of the rules. Very bad break, that what? Evidently, Tony was not so much impressed by the eccentricities of our host as was I. She approved of the hotel and its situation and had made up her mind to stop. I could tell it by her face as she addressed the proprietor. Have you accommodation if we should make up our minds to stay here for a few days? She asked. Stay here? You want to stay? He repeated. Consternation written large all over his face. Good, g- I mean, certainly, of course, of course. He bolted down the passage like a rabbit, and we heard hoarse whispering from the direction in which he had gone. Dotty, I suggested. Not a bit of it, retorted Tony. Nervous, because he is new to his job very anxious to be obliging. We shall do splendidly here. I shrugged my shoulders and said no more, because I know Tony. I have been married to her for years and years. Light steps upon the tiles heralded something new, different, but equally surprising. Tea is served, madam, if you will step this way. She was the apotheosis of all waitresses. Her frock was black, but it was of silk and finely cut. Her apron, of coarse white cotton, was grotesque against it. She had neat little feet, encased in high-heeled shoes, "'and her stockings were of silk. "'Her common cap that she wore coquettishly on her dark curls "'and her face was charming, "'though petrified in that unnatural expression of distance "'which, as a rule, only the very best menials can attain.' There were no other guests in the coffee room, and this marvel of maids devoted the whole of her attention to us, standing over us like a column of ice which thawed only to attend upon our wants. There was no getting past her veil of reticence. Tony tried her with questions, but, yes, madam. No, madam, and certainly madam appeared the sum of her vocabulary. Yet when we sent her to the kitchen for more hot water, we were conscious of a whispering and giggling, which assured us that off the stage she could thaw. We must stay a day or two said Tony. I'm dying to swim in that creek. My dear, how often have you promised me that you would never subject me to that after we were married, I protested. When I see a creek, I must just swim in it, retorted Tony, deliberately forswearing herself so we'll book that room. At that moment, the celestial waitress returned with the hot water, and Tony made know her determination. I drive the car, but Tony supplies the driving power. Certainly, madam, I shall speak to Mr. Gunthorpe. Quickly she returned. Number 10 is vacant. The Boots and Chambermaid are both away at a sheep trial, but we expect them back any moment. I shall show you the room, madam, and if you will leave the car, sir, until the Boots returns, that will be all right. No hurry. No hurry. While we were examining our bedroom and finding it all that could be desired, I heard a car draw up before the hotel and the sound of voices in conversation. A few minutes later, on going downstairs, I made the acquaintance of the boots. He was obviously awaiting me by the car and touched his forelock in a manner rarely seen off the stage. He wore khaki cord breeches with leather leggings, a striped shirt open at the neck, and chewed a straw desperately. In no other respect did he resemble the boots of an out of the way hotel. Garage round this way, sir, he said, guiding me to my destination, which I found already contained a two-seater of the same make as my own. Ripping little car, eh? Said the boots, chewing vigorously at his straw as he stood, his hands deep in what are graphically known as go-to-hell pockets, and his legs well straddled. Hop over anything, what? Topping weather we're having. Been like this for weeks. If you don't mind, old chap, you might wiggle her over this way a bit. Something else might blow in, eh? I looked at this latest manifestation with undisguised astonishment. But he was imperturbable, and merely chewed his straw with renewed energy. That's the stuff, old lad, he said, as I laid the car in position. "Hmm, What now? Shall I give you a hand with the trunk, or will you hump it yourself? Don't mind me a bit. I'm ready for anything. He looked genial, but I found him familiar. So with a curt... Take it to number ten. I strode off to overtake Tony, whom I saw halfway down a rough path that led to her beloved creek. I've seen the chambermaid, she said, when I overtook her. Such a pretty girl, but very shy and unsophisticated. Quite a girl where's a wedding ring i watched tony waiting for some time but as the amusement consisted of mainly getting her under apparel wet i grew tired of it and climbed back to the hotel the bar window was open once more in the little lounge and mr gunthorpe was behind his arms resting upon the ledge Have a drink, he said, as I entered. It's all right now. The balloon's gone up. I looked at my watch. It was after six o'clock. I'll have a small scotch and soda, I decided. This is on the house, said the eccentric landlord. He produced two glasses and filled them. And I noticed that he took money from his pocket and placed it in the till. Well, success to the new management, I said, raising my glass to his. Cheerio, and thank you, said he, smiling genially upon me. He seemed to me more self-possessed and less eccentric than he had appeared upon our arrival. I determined to draw him out. It's funny that an Australian should have owned a hotel away up in the Welsh hills, I hazarded. Did he die recently? Australia? You must have misunderstood me, said Mr. Gunthorpe with a hunted look in his eyes. Very likely, very likely, I said, Ostend. Ostend? Well, possibly I did, I agreed, feeling certain that I had made no mistake. Had he a hotel there as well? Yes, yes, of course, uh, of course, of course, agreed the landlord largely redundant. And are you running that as well? Heaven forbid, he exclaimed with a shudder. You see, this, this is just a small legacy. It'll be all right by and by. All right, all right. Let's have another drink. On me, I insisted. Not at all, not at all, on the house, all for the good of the house. Come along, Bob, have a drink. It was the Boots who had now entered, and he strolled up to the bar with all the self-possession of a welcome guest. Just a spot of scotch, old thing, he said brightly. It's a hard life, shaking down good and comfy, laddie. This last, to me. Ask for anything you fancy. It doesn't follow you'll get it, but if we have it, it's yours. Tinkle, tinkle, crash, crash. With this unusual toast, he raised his glass and drained it. Have another he said, three scotches, Boniface. I protested. This was too hot and fast for me altogether. Besides, I did not fancy being indebted to this somewhat overwhelming boots. My protest was of no avail. The glasses were filled while yet the words were upon my lips. I thought of Tony and trembled. Common decency would force me to stand still another round before I could cry a halt. All well in the buttery, asked the boots of the landlord in a confidential tone. The banquet is in preparation, replied the latter. Everything is in train. Heaven grant that it comes out of train reasonably, laddie, said Boots fervently. But you know Molly, I wouldn't trust an ostrich to her cooking. Here's hoping for the best. He drained his glass again, and this time I managed to get a show. Three more whiskies, please, landlord. And Tony in clear view, cut up into nice squares by the little leaded panes. I got mine absorbed just in time, and was on the doorstep to meet her, draggle-skirted and untidy, but enthusiastic about her swim. She broke her vows three times on the way up to number ten, and excused her lapses on the grounds that, The creek was the perfect image of one near a place she called Perth. When she rang for hot water to wash away the traces of her ablutions in the creek, I had my first view of the chambermaid. I found her even more ravishing than the waitress downstairs, and with the additional advantage that she was not standoffish. Indeed, she was a giggler. She giggled at my slightest word, and Tony altered her first impression and dubbed her a forward hussy. Personally, I liked the girl, though she broke all precedent by attending upon us in a silk blouse and a tailor-made tweed skirt. When I wandered downstairs before dinner, I came upon her again, this time unmistakably in the arms of the ubiquitous boots. I had walked innocently into a small sitting room where a lamp already shone, and I came upon the romantic picture unexpectedly. With a murmured word of inarticulate apology, I made to retire. It's all right, old fruit, don't hurry away, said Boots affably. Awfully sorry and all that. Quite forgot it was a public room, don't you know? The chambermaid giggled once more and bolted, straightening her cap as she went. You don't mind, do you? Continued Boots, making a clumsy show of trimming the lamp. Warm is the greeting when seas have rolled between us. Perhaps not quite that, but you see the idea, eh? He would doubtless have said more, being evidently of a cheery nature had not the waitress of the afternoon appeared in the doorway, her face as frozen as a mask of ice. Bob, uh, Kennel, she said sharply, and held the door wide. The cheeriness vanished, and the boots followed it through the open doorway. I trust you will excuse him, sir, said the waitress. Deferentially, he is just a little deranged, but quite harmless. We employ him out of charity, sir. I may have been mistaken, but a sound uncommonly like the chambermaid's giggle came to me from the passage outside. The sound of a car stopping outside the hotel drew me to the window as the waitress left me, and I was in time to see an old gentleman with a long white beard step from the interior of a Daimler Landaulet, the door of which was held open by a dignified chauffeur, whose attire seemed to consist mainly of brass buttons. A consultation evidently took place in the smoking room or bar between this patriarch and the proprietor, and then I heard agitated voices in the passage outside. It's a blinking invasion, said Mr. Gunthorpe. I tell you we can't do it. Good heavens, they threaten to stop a month if they are comfortable. Don't worry then, old bean. They won't stop long. This in the voice of Boots. And they want a special diet. Old girl can't eat meat, suffers from a duodenal ulcer. I tell you, we got quick intimate. We can't. Do it, Molly. Fathead, of course we can. I'll concoct her something the like of which her, what you may call it, has never before tackled. Run along, Bill, and be affable. Shall I stand them a drink? Mr. Gunthorpe again. Do, old Bean. I'll come and have one, too, said Boots. You won't, Bob. You'll see to the chauffeur and the car and the luggage. Hang the luggage. I'll stand the chauffeur a drink. Then the female voice spoke warningly. You've had enough drinks already, both of you, it said. You ought to bear in mind that you're not running the hotel just for your two selves. It's all right, old girl. There's plenty for everybody. Cellar's full of it. The voices died away, and I strolled out into the bar once more. Mr. Gunthorpe was being affable, according to instructions to the old gentleman, while an old lady in a bonnet looked on piercingly. Quite all right about the diet, the landlord was saying as I entered. We make a specialty of special diets. In fact, our ordinary diet is a special diet. Certainly, of course, we've got mulligatawny soup, sardines, roast beef, trifle, and gorgonzola cheese. Perhaps you'll have a drink while you wait? Certainly not, sir, replied the old gentleman testily. You seem to be unable to comprehend. My wife has a duodenal ulcer, sir. Had it fourteen years in September. "'And you talk to me of mulligatawny soup?' "'I quite understand. "'Of course, of course,' replied Mr. Gunthorpe urbanely. "'Everything of uh, an irritating character will be left out of the—' "'Then it won't be mulligatawny soup, you fool.' exploded the old lady, whose pressure I had seen rising for some time. Certainly not, madam, of course, indubitably. We'll call it beef tea, and it will never know. What will never know? Asked the old gentleman, with an air of puzzlement. Madam's duodenal ulcer, sir, replied the landlord with a deferential bow, dedicated, doubtless, to that organ. Each separate hair in the old gentleman's beard began to curl and coil with the electricity of exasperation, and at every moment— I expected to see sparks fly out from it. The old lady folded her hands across her treasure and looked daggers at the landlord. How far is it to the nearest hotel, John? She demanded acidly. Too far to go tonight, Mary. I'm afraid we must put up with this... This sanatorium, replied her husband. As a diversion, I demanded an appetizer, a gin and bitters. Mr. Gunthorpe's face lit up, and he bolted behind the bar. Certainly, of course, have it with me, he exclaimed eagerly, his eyes full of gratitude for the diversion. I had the greatest difficulty in paying for our two drinks, for, of course, Mr. Gunthorpe would not let me drink alone, and I was equally insistent that the house had done enough for me. Then we must have another, he declared, as the only way out of the difficulty. Fortunately, for me, Tony appeared on the scene, clothed and in her right mind, speaking once more the English language, and I contrived to avoid further stimulation. Mr. Gunthorpe looked at me reproachfully as I moved off with my wife. I could see that he dreaded further interrogation on the subject of diets. Nothing further of the moment occurred before dinner. But Tony and I went out and admired the wonderful view in the dim half-light. And just as the midges got the better of us, even my foul old pipe did not give us the victory. The gong sounded for dinner and covered our retreat. It was the maddest dinner in which I had ever participated. Three tables were laid in the little coffee room, and, as Tony and I were the first to put in an appearance, I had the curiosity to look at the bill of fare at the first table I came to. This way, sir, if you please. Said the chilling voice of our exemplary waitress. Already, I had deciphered beef tea and steamed sole on the card and concluded that the table was reserved for the duodenal ulcer. At the table to which we were conducted, I found mulligatawny soup figuring on the menu. And I wondered. The old lady and gentleman were ushered to their seats by the boots, now smartly dressed in striped trousers and black coat and waistcoat. I say smartly, because the clothes were of good material, and the wearer looked easily the best-clad man in the hotel. The two places laid at the third table were taken by a boy and girl of such youthful appearance that both Tony and I were astonished to find them living alone in a hotel. The boy might have been fifteen and the girl twelve at most, but that they were overwhelmingly at home in their surroundings was quickly manifest, as was the fact that they were brother and sister. The latter fact was evidenced by the manner in which the boy bullied the girl and contradicted her at every opportunity. There was something of a strained weight when all of us had taken our places i saw the old gentleman eyeglasses on the tip of his nose studying the bill of fare intently then he turned to his wife minced chicken and rice peptonized he said suspiciously did you ever hear of such a dish mary never But nothing would surprise me in this place, replied his wife, looking round the room with a censorious eye that even included the innocent Tony and myself. The two children chuckled. They wore an air of expectancy, such as I have noticed in my nephews and nieces when I have been inveigled to take them to Maskelyne's show. They seemed on very intimate terms with the waitress, and the mere sight of boots sent them into fits of suppressed chuckling. He, standing by the sideboard, napkin over arm, added to their hilarity by winking violently at regular intervals. Catching my eye upon him, he crossed to our table. Everything all right, eh? He said, glancing over the layout of our table. Everything, except that so far we have had no food, I replied. "'It's the soup,' he said, leaning confidentially to my ear. "'The cat fell into it, and they're combing it out of her fur. "'Have a drink while you wait? "'No? "'All right, old thing. "'I dare say you know best when you've had enough. "'Shut up, you kids. "'Don't you see you're irritating the old boy?' this in a horse aside, to the children at the next table. It made them giggle the more. Surely they are very young to be stopping here alone, said Tony, with a touch of her national inquisitiveness. Very sad case, madam, replied the Boots. We found them here when we came, you know wrapped in a blanket, on the doorstep. Not quite, perhaps, but you see the idea. Sort of wards of the hotel. He was interrupted by the entrance of the waitress with soup. She gave him a frozen glance and a jerk of the head, and he vanished to the kitchen to return with more soup and at last we got a start on our meal. The soup was good, notwithstanding the story of the cat. It really was mulligatawny. There was no doubt about that. The old couple were not so well satisfied. They sipped a little, had a whispered consultation, and beckoned the boots. "'Waiter, do you call this beef tea?' demanded the old gentleman. "'You can't have me there, my lad,' retorted Boots cheerily. "'From the Latin beef, beef and tea, tea, beef tea, "'take a spoonful of tea and a lump of beef, shake well together.' Simmer gently till ready, and serve with a ham frill. The old gentleman's face showed deep purple against his white whiskers, and the waitress left our table hurriedly, hustled the boots from the room, and crossed to the old couple. I could not hear all she said. But I understood that the boots was liable to slight delusions, but quite harmless. The beef tea was the best that could be prepared on such short notice, and so on. It was the main course of the meal that brought the climax. It was roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, excellently cooked, and so far as we were concerned, efficiently served. The irrepressible boots had, however, by this time drifted back to duty. I saw him bear plates to the old people's table containing a pale mess, which I rightly concluded was the minced chicken and rice, peptonized already referred to by the old gentleman. The couple eyed it suspiciously while their attendant hovered near, apparently awaiting the congratulations which were bound to follow the consumption of the dish. John, it's beef, screamed the old lady, starting to her feet and spluttering. Damn, so it is, confirmed her husband, after a bare mouthful. Hi, you, scoundrel, poisoner, assassin, send the manager here at once. He waved his napkin in a fury, and Boots cocked an eye at him, curiously. Won't you have another try, he urged. Be sporty about it. Hang it, it looks like chopped chicken, and it is chopped. I chopped it myself. Have another try. You'll believe it in time if you persevere. It's the first step that counts, you know. I used to be able to say that in French, but. He only got so far because the old gentleman had been inarticulate with rage. Fetch the manager. I don't dare utter another word. Confound you, he shouted. A few moments later, our friend Mr. Gunthorpe entered. His eyes were bright, and a satisfied smile rested on his lips. Good evening, sir, he said affably. I believe you sent for me. I hope everything is to your taste. Everything is nothing of the sort, sir, retorted the old gentleman. You have attempted a gross fraud upon us, sir. I find on the menu chicken, and it is nothing more nor less than chopped beef, and peptonized. Peptonized be hanged, sir. It is no more peptonized than my hat. Well, sir, as for your hat, I can say nothing but none of your insolence, sir. I insist on having this filth taken away and something suitable put before us. My wife has possessed a duodenal ulcer for fourteen years come September, and... Be hanged your duodenal ulcer as this... Isn't its birthday, why should it have a blinking banquet? Let it take potluck with the rest of us. A sudden burst of uncontrollable laughter made me turn sharply, to find that the reserve had fallen from our chilly waitress, who was vainly endeavoring to smother her laughter in a professional napkin. Oh, Bill, she cried, you've done it now. The game's up. The old lady and the gentleman arose in outraged dignity and started to leave the room when a diversion was caused by the entrance of a pleasant-faced lady in a hat and cloak, I had been semi-conscious for some moments of a motor engine running at the hotel door. Oh, Mr. Gunthorpe, what luck, cried the newcomer. I've collected a full staff and brought them all up from Dalgeli with me. Look you. Thank heaven, exclaimed the proprietor. As soon as your barmaid is on her job, we'll drink all their healths. I hope you won't be annoyed, Miss Jones. But I fear, I very greatly fear, you will lose a couple of likely customers at dawn or soon after. Uh, Here they are. Perhaps you can still pacify them. I can't. Miss Jones turned to the old couple, who were waiting for the doorway to clear, with a disarming and conciliatory smile. I hope you will make allowances, she said, with a musical Welsh intonation. I am the manageress, and everything is at sixes and sevens, look you. This morning I had trouble with the staff and just to annoy me, they all cleared off together. I had to leave the hotel to see what I could find in dolgally Mr. Gunthorpe and the other guests in the hotel very kindly offered to see to things while I was away, and I'm sure they have done their best indeed. Done their best to poison us, certainly growled the old gentleman. My wife has a duo. That's all right, old chap, interrupted Mr. Gunthorpe. Miss Jones is an expert in those things. She'll feed it the proper tack, believe me. Give her a chance, and don't blame her for our shortcomings. By this time, the whole mock staff Had taken the stage. Waitress, boots, chambermaid, and a pleasant faced lady of matronly appearance, who I learnt was Mrs. Gunthorpe, and the mother of the two children of whom we had been told such a harrowing history. And just think, dear, said Tony, smiling at me across the table. The boots and the chambermaid are on their honeymoon. He is a journalist. How do you know all this? I demanded suspiciously. I wormed the whole thing out of the chambermaid at the very beginning, said Tony. I didn't tell you because I thought it would be more fun. Miss Jones succeeded in pacifying the old couple somehow, mainly, I think, by promises of a new regime, and we left them in the coffee room, looking almost cheerful. Tony and I went out to talk in the moonlight while I smoked an after-dinner cigar. We were gone for some time, and on our return decided to go straight upstairs to bed. I noticed that the lights still burned in the coffee room and heard the sounds of voices from that direction. Thinking that some late guests had arrived during our absence, I had the curiosity to glance round the door. The whole of our late staff sat round a table on which were arrayed much food and several gilt-topped bottles. Come along, do join us, cried Mr. Gunthorpe, sighting us at once. Come and celebrate the end of this bat-in-the-belfry sort of management, added Boots, holding high a sparkling glass. It ended in Tony and I being dragged into the celebration, and that ended in quite a late sitting. Tony and I lingered on for over a week at the Bat and Belfry Inn, as we called it, and so, strange to say, did the duodenal couple, whom, indeed, we left there, Special dieting to their heart's content. Good night.